This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. Uh, this is the place where we hopefully answer your maintenance questions, especially those thorny ones that your mechanic has a hard time answering. So if you have a question and if you'd like to be on the show, contact us at podcasts at AOPA.org and we'll try to get you on. And don't forget to follow and subscribe and be alerted. So anytime a new show comes out, you can get right to it. And if you'd like to be on our mailing list, uh, get our quarterly, um, I mean, our monthly newsletter and uh, other interesting stuff, probably the easiest way to do that is to um, grab your, your uh, smartphone and text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and a little bot will pop up and ask you for your name and email address and put you on our mailing list. That is, uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list. Big news these days. What's that? With the fuel thing. <laughs> the fuel thing. The oh. fuel thing. Everybody needs you, fuel. You, you're talking about the what happened at yeah, University of North Dakota? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was, I found that very disappointing because, I mean, I, I think everybody knows I'm a huge fan of the transition to unleaded fuel and would like to see that happen as quickly and smoothly as possible. And uh, University of North Dakota had been running a a test in their flight school uh, of the Swift ninety uh, four UL unleaded in their in their training fleet. And uh, last week they announced that they were pulling out of the test and going back to hundred low lead. And the reason that they gave for that was that they believed that they were having a higher rate of um, valve seat wear running the Swift 94 UL. So how now, exactly would unleaded create <laughs> valve seat wear? I mean, I know what's they talked about the it. mechanism. It, yeah, what's the mechanism? Because they, they well, talk that, about that's, it pummeling the, the seat into the head. But Yeah, that's what really troubles me because the FAA did a lot of testing of this back when they were doing their fuel initiative uh, out of uh, the tech center in Atlantic City. Uh, that was, what, 10, 15 years ago? And they, they ran a lot of tests of leaded versus unleaded fuel, and they could never detect any difference in where. So this was very surprising. There's, there's a very, very common belief among 
many A&P mechanics, maybe even most A&P mechanics, I haven't taken a poll, that somehow lead is necessary to, quote, lubricate the valves, unquote. I've heard that. And, yeah. and, and I've heard a lot of mechanics advise clients who are like running unleaded MOGAS, like in, like in experimentals and stuff. That they really ought to run a tank 100 low lead through there every few flights to keep the valves, quote, lubricated, unquote. And as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) that's all a lot of nonsense. But what really disappointed me about UND was the the way they responded to this, that what I wish they'd done is said, hey, we think maybe there's a problem here. So we're going to divide our training fleet into two groups and we're going to run one group on uh, on the 94UL and the other group on higher low lead and then we're going to you know do some comparison stuff they didn't do that they just they just pulled out and there may have been political pressure or something it's hard to know you know once the mechanics there and and you know the the, the conspiracy theory <laughs> part of me. We, we says, need more conspiracy may, theories. May, you know, maybe those mechanics were were, were looking for a, a problem because they really believed that lead was necessary and, and people tend to see what they want to see. But, but, but at any rate, you know, once the issue came up, I imagine there were some people in administration at UND saying, oh, my God, if, 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 if the parents of our flight school people think we're using them as <laughs> guinea pigs or something, well, they would I freak out. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, really know what happened behind the scenes. But I, anyway, I was very disappointed that, that, that they pulled out the way they did all, you know, lock, stock and barrel um, and uh, wish they'd taken a a more scientific approach to get to the bottom of whatever was happening, if indeed anything really was happening. Why would it wear the valve seats and not, say, the cylinder walls? Is, is the valves made out of softer material? Well, are they, are they I mean, I, I, first of all, I'm skeptical that, that it really did. The method that they were using uh, allegedly to, the, the, it, this is based on their press release that they were using to, uh, to measure this wear was was dry tappet clearance. And dry tappet clearance is a horribly inaccurate way to measure that because first of all, there's no such thing as a dry tappet. And second of all, the the dry tappet clearance is is the sum of a whole bunch of different interfaces all added up. And that's why dry tappet clearance specs are like wide enough to drive a truck through. You know, I think on Lycoming's it's it's what point twenty eight to point eighty or something like that. Yeah, or, I mean o o o twenty eight to o eight. Twenty eight thousand to eighty is huge. It's, it's just a huge uh, uh, allowable spec because dry, the, the, you know the measurement can can kind of vary all over the place. And and the only reason you take the measurement is that if the thing is wildly out of whack, then 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 you put a different length push rod in to to get it somewhere and somewhere for, in the acceptable range. When you range. say when you say dry tap it, that means you've um, expunged the oil from the hydraulic tap it that so that it's the, the completely is, flat. It's completely flat. Yeah. But really, the only right. way to get it completely, completely flat is to take it apart. It's very hard to, to get a, a lifter. And even then, you would have had to start with a known value for each and every one because they're all different. So you would have had to measure it when you put the engine on, and then you're— Subsequent measurements would have to account for 
which other items are wearing and you have to identify which ones are wearing and identify if if fuel could be a cause of it it, it just doesn't make good sense to me yeah now the, the political the other, part the, does <laughs> yeah the, the, there's another possibility that that I don't give a lot of credence to but I've just been exploring all of, all the things that could possibly have accounted for it and one one thing that that they may or may not have taken into account is the fact that you know the the primary determinant on on valve seat wear is is the pressure that's pushing the valve against the seat which is primarily a function of of peak combustion chamber pressure and if you are running a lower octane fuel you will have a higher peak combustion chamber pressure the 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 higher octane fuels the the thing that makes them higher octane fuels is that the flame front burns more slowly and so the pressure peak is is broader and not as high it's it's a it's a, a kinder gentler pressure peak that <laughs> happens inside the cylinder with higher octane fuel yeah. so it you know it's conceivable that that the drop from 100 octane to 94 octane I mean, Gave could, you could have been could be compensated for by retarding the ignition timing by a degree or something like that. But the, they, the, no, nobody looked into any of that. They, they just they just pulled the plug on it unceremoniously. So and I, I was unfortunate because I, I think as a first of all, it was it was bad PR for unleaded nav gas, but also it, it was a lost opportunity to to really do some scientific testing with a control group and stuff, which they which I wish they had it done. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in the conversation between Swift and UND because I'm sure Swift didn't want this to happen and they probably oh, proposed a lot of what you're saying, right? And and I That's a horrible. Yeah. I was speaking to somebody the other day who's I won't name but but is a a fairly high profile figure in all this and I said <laughs> would gee, you know, since Swift I mean, since UND pulled out of it, I wonder if we could get somebody like Embry Riddle to pick up the ball. And and he said, "Oh man, after after what's what UND did, I bet Embry Riddle didn't wouldn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole." <laughs> yeah. you know, politically. Yeah. So missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, that's really the function of lead is to raise the octane. Correct. Uh, that, which is what you know. Dad used to work at Phillips as one of the guys involved in. Uh, what do you call it? Cracking, uh, cracking the petroleum, right? Yeah, cracking it and figuring out octane and all that. So that, that's very interesting. Our first question is from Bill, who may have dodged a spinning bullet. How you doing, Bill? Hi. How are you, Paul? Good, good to see you guys. Good, good to have you. Yeah. So my question has to do is I've got a 182s three-bladed propeller Macaulay, and it hasn't been overhauled in several years. And uh, I'm at year seven. I have about 600 hours on it since the last time it was overhauled, I'd say, in 2016. So, as you know, the manufacturer recommends five years. And I always took it up to my IA every year, two years ago and last year, and said, hey, Tom, what do you think? 
It says, I don't know, that thing looks awful good to me. The flex is fine. There's no looseness. There's no anything wrong. I think it can go another year. Good so idea. this goes on till this March when I had a separate problem with the engine. I had to send the engine off to get it, uh, the tappets redone. And uh, so the cam was a mess. And like homing paid for it, by the way, but that's a separate issue. Oh, that's nice. So I sent the yeah. prop off to New England Propeller and they whacked at it and it took about six, six weeks to get it back. And I said, you know, the hub was really close to being trashed. And unfortunately, from the corrosion, we were able to machine it down and make it serviceable again. So I know Mike likes to be cheap and go on conditions of condition. <laughs> that is not I'm saying my, Wow. I'm saying to myself, okay, do I go seven years? And if I went eight years on the prop, I might have had to get a new hub. Mm-hmm. So what can I, as a private pilot, do for my poor propeller sitting in a hangar? Do I spray it with WD-40? Do I oh, gosh, hit it no. with demineralized <laughs> oil? It's, what can I do to extend the life beyond the five years? Because the indication I have is I should have overhauled it probably at the five-year point. But none of those things you suggested would get to the inside of the hub. Where the problem yeah, was, yeah. yeah so, <laughs> although I have some uh, seen some places say if you use LPS three, it can kind of uh, help seal where the prop hub interface is. I've never done that. That's where the moisture is getting in, right? I'm assuming where the blades so fit into I'm the. I'm just hub. wondering how I could do. I stay with a five year as I'm learning. I probably should do, or can. Hopefully, each year, year seven, year eight, I follow the Mike Bush philosophy and then find out I got to get a new hub redone to put on the engine. We send out a lot of propellers from aircraft that just decide they want to have a a reseal or an IRAN. Most of them are around the 12-year mark. And so far, I've not had a single hub be rejected. Now, I'm not just, that's just anecdotal. So. I, I've been there. sitting here biting my tongue here. <laughs> <laughs> so before before Mike goes into his diatribe, because I know exactly what Mike's going to say, I want to tell Bill that I've been in the same situation. My prop and hub were pulled longer than a five-year interval, and they told me that I had corrosion on my hub and it required a new hub. I don't know how long it went, but I've been in the same boat. I think they're kind of like the weather guy. You know, it's like it, it's June, but there is a possibility of a snowflake. And, you know, they're... They have to be alarmist? I, I don't know. Maybe not. I don't pull my prop anymore because yes, Mike has said, "Don't when you don't look, you won't see a problem. <laughs> and we don't have props coming off. I mean, you don't have no, propellers coming off and airplanes falling out of the sky because of it. And most airplanes, if I look out on the ramp at the, well, there's very few Macaulays on 210s anymore. But, you know, on the 182s, uh, the the legacy 182s, not the restart. Quite a few Macaulays still on those. And man, those guys have, you know, they're waiting for engine overhaul to get to 2,000 hours or whatever. And they forget about the 12 year limit on the TBO. And so now they're at 20 and 22 years. And that's how long the prop's been on there. Yeah. My, my Macaulays have, have been on that long. And I'm not, I'm not in a hurry to do anything about them. Uh, I, I, I want to make, 
two comments here, two different comments. The first comment is prop shops are, are like a piece of work. Prop shops are these zero tolerance outfits that, that if they take a prop apart, they always find something wrong with it. <laughs> the, the fact that the prop shop finds something wrong with the propeller doesn't mean that the propeller was unsafe. It just means that that it it failed some obscure technical specification that the prop shops are required to uh, abide by. So I'm going to switch my comment number two. Um, I, I I have been a NTSB accident report junkie for about five decades. I have read thousands and thousands of GA accident reports, uh, NTSB reports. Uh, I subscribe to a monthly publication called the NTSB Reporter that sends me a whole bunch of them every month. And they, they, that's exactly what I do when I'm in the bathroom. I read accident reports. <laughs> And in 50 years of looking at those things, I have not seen one case, not one, of a general aviation accident caused by a, by a high-time propeller. I've seen propellers that detach themselves from the airplane. I, I think, didn't Senator Inhofe have one of those back some years ago? But that's not the fault of the propeller. That's the fault of whoever it was that torqued the, you know, the, the nuts on. <laughs> I have seen one or two propeller-related accidents involving turbine airplanes with, with, uh, with beta props. But those are way more complicated than the props that, that are on our Piston GA airplanes. But I've, I've ever seen a, an accident caused by by a high time prop. So, I mean, just doesn't worry me. <laughs> and, and I know that, I, I, I know in my heart that if I ever sent my props in, they would be essentially beyond repair. That, that I would, I would be basically have to replace them with new ones. Because I, I have those old, horrible, Macaulay threaded oh, props. Yeah, that, that, threaded. That, uh, and, and and they don't make parts for them anymore. And the only way you can keep them alive is to go find salvage yard components for them and stuff. And and so th those props, if anything ever goes wrong with them, uh, they'll they'll have to get replaced with with new props. But until something goes, until you know they start leaking or I start getting some kind of uh, RPM regulation problem or. Something, I, I, I mean, I just don't see any good reason to send them to the prop shop because I know if I ever do, they're going to condemn them. So that, that's kind of my attitude. <laughs> they have very high standards at the prop shop. And the reason they have very high standards is because the props are subject to very high forces. And we learn all about this in school. They put the fear of God in us about, you know, the centrifugal forces and the twisting forces and, and how much abuse a prop hub takes. But you're right. I mean, the only prop I know that came off was my husband's prop, and it got ripped off at Reno. <laughs> that was but not again, there wasn't anything wrong with the prop. It was the attachment of the prop to the and engine. It, that, no, it is that, amazing. That was the the airplane, stick shaker's fault. The, the airplane still <laughs> flies without a propeller. It just doesn't fly for very long. Well, but. it plays hell with the center of gravity. 
Yeah, but um, you're right. I mean, you know, my blades have been loose. I've, I've looked at it. I've greased it. You know, the, the, whenever we come to the annual, you look at the prop and you're like, prop looks good. There's not much to do. And I just move on to the rest of the stuff on the plane. I'm always wondering what's inside. Now, you know, the thing about you do have to take seriously about a prop are the blades. You know, if, if you if you ever get like a, a, a big nick in the blade, it, it's very, very important to 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 dress it out if it's dressable and because the you know I, I saw a, a stop action movie as I, I don't know where they where they were flashing a strobe light at a propeller when it was in operation I saw this years ago and they, they ran the prop through through its RPM range and 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 you could actually watch what happens to the blades and it's scary as hell. The, Don't the, look. The blades, <laughs> yeah. the blades bend. They, 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 they have. They develop standing waves on them. The amount of flex <laughs> in a, in an aluminum propeller blade when it's spinning is absolutely mind-boggling. And you see something like that, you never look at a prop neck the same again, <laughs> because that that propeller blade is, you know, is being. You yeah. think that's bad? Look at a rotor blade on a on a helicopter. But but, but let's the not thing go is there, that, but yeah, that the, the the you know prop blades are easily inspectable. Your IA can look at a, at the prop blade and see if there's anything, anything wrong with it. The hub is the black box. He can't look inside. They they unfortunately didn't put like borescope openings and stuff in these in prop hubs. Wish they did. Wish they put more of them in engines too. But um, but we can't look and inside sure. the, the hub. How does corrosion get in there? Because I live in Southern California where it never rains. We don't have moisture. I don't wash well, I mean, the airplane. That's, that's, that's the other thing. That, that, that Like all TBOs, prop TBOs are one-size-fits-all numbers. They don't take into account anything about how the prop is used, where it lives, whether it's hangered, whether it lives outdoors. And, and so their recommendations are, which have to work for every propeller in the fleet have to be calibrated to like the worst case airplane in the fleet that, that you know, they, they, they base that five years or seven years, whatever it is. It depends on the, on the particular propeller is sitting on an airplane that's sitting out on a tie down in South Florida, you know, or something like that. And, you know, it, that's, that it, it may be appropriate for, 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 for a prop that, that sits outside in Pensacola to, um, you know, to 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 have to be taken apart every five years, but if the airplane is is based in Denver or if it's hangered in California or something, the recommended time is way too conservative. You know, it it it, it so you you it, it's really. I mean, I thought your IA's attitude of saying yeah, hey, don't really fix good. it yeah. is it, it was excellent, and and it's sort of a shame that you succumb to the. <laughs> temptation to send it in just because the engine was down, but I, un I understand that. But once you send it to the prop shop, they're going to find something wrong with it. Because and and it's not because they're evil people; it's because they are required to to measure a gazillion things and do you know all sorts of NDT. And 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 there's a a, a big overhaul manual that tells them exactly what what they have to do. They're a repair station. They have to do it by the book. Yeah. Yep. So, um, and, 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 and the, and like I say, that it's typically zero tolerance stuff that it's a little less than zero tolerance for the blades. They can actually do quite a bit 
to the blades. They can shorten the blades a fair amount and still be in spec. But what they have to do with the hub is is pretty much non-negotiable. But this isn't about being cheap. To me, this is... Wise. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I, I agree. Good question, Bill. Yeah. Okay, thank Thanks. you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Good Thanks luck for with calling. that spiraling. Yep. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Our next question is from Tate, who is a proud member of the Overthinkers Anonymous Club. So you're welcome here among friends. What, what's going on today, Tate? <laughs> well, so I was listening to many of y'all's podcasts and, and oil levels always seem to be an issue. You know, somebody thinks they're blowing by too much oil. And I fly a 2006 SR22 with about 2,200 hours on it. So I'm trying to get as much life out as I can. But my engine burns oil, and sometimes it seems to burn more more oil than it does other times. And I started thinking about it, and it's kind of obvious. You know, if you let it sit for a couple of days, obviously your oil level comes up, and it, and your oil burn goes down. So I started thinking, you know, is well, this there? You go. Things? That's that's trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. That that has taken me down a rabbit hole. My wife's like, you know, what are you doing? Don't worry about it. But um, you know, are we all just scaring ourselves to death by? checking our oil at different intervals. You know, if a flight school checks it between each flight and they add another quarter, they just dumping another quarter off into the atmosphere or yes. is, is the right way to figure out how much oil we actually have in the engine to, to drain all the oil and then put a couple of quarts in there and then crank it and fly it till the engine seizes and then divide the number of hours <laughs> until we no, crash. Probably and, not no, the opposite. plan, right? But, uh, <laughs> Sounds like something... I, no, I'm the, liking the, Tate, man. He's he's yeah. thinking just the way kind of thoughts I would think. Pull the chute, you know, when the yeah, engine stops. The <laughs> tag out. <laughs> I, I've done a lot of experimenting. I have a, a 2002 G1 SR22, and we've actually talked about it because my oil consumption was up at about a quart per hour not too long ago, and I did a anyway. So I went through the whole process. And I did an awful lot and am still doing a lot of experimenting with customers' airplanes as well on how this works. And I'm a big proponent of not running your engine right before you drain the oil because then you've got oil up inside the engine. And my way to prove that is run the engine today, check the oil an hour after you've run the engine, and then leave it and come back a week later and see how much more oil that you've gained into the sump. And if you change the oil, an hour after you ran it, the week later, that amount that you have, the extra, that's how much you left in the engine that you didn't get out during the oil change. So if you're doing an oil consumption comparison, pick a length of time that's at least a day. And this is just anecdotal. Pick a week if you want, however, however much time, uh, but just make it consistent and use that as your method to determine your oil consumption. But the second question is actually about oil level and whether it's okay to fly on this flight. And if you just landed, put fuel in the airplane, you pull the dipstick out and it shows six quarts, well, you've been on the ground for 15 minutes. There's at least seven, maybe seven and a half in that eight quart sump. If it shows five, you've still got quite a bit more than five. So that is two different 
two different questions. Yeah, no, it, yeah. but it's but it's not it's not in the sump. It's it's all adhered to all kinds of things. Yeah, it's all over. <laughs> yeah, it's all over the engine. It's on but, the back of the pistons if, and if, cylinders. And gravity is going to work the, eventually. The, the dipstick only measures what's in the sump, not what's in the engine. And and I'll, I I want to take issue with something Paul said because I don't think he really meant it. But uh, <laughs> it, it, if if you're interested in measuring oil consumption, to me, there's only one reasonable way to do that. And that is to keep track of how much makeup oil you put in the engine over the course of an oil change interval. Then you're, you're dealing with it over a, a relatively long period of time, 50 hours or 33 hours or something out, like that. Right. And then, you, then you, you will get some sort of a meaningful average. It still won't be completely accurate. But if you try to gauge oil consumption using the dipstick, you you can get wildly oscillating numbers because the dipstick, first of all, is not particularly accurate. It kind of depends on whether the airplane is sitting on level ground or whatever it is when you take the, the reading. And But more importantly, it takes a very, very long time after you run the engine for, for the oil to, to get from whatever it's adhering to in the engine down into the sun. But it's not the, but uh, I think you might've mentioned the oil filter. It's not the oil filter because the oil filter has a check valve on it and any, any oil in the oil filter stays in the oil filter. But, but it's, it's oil that's, that's adhered to all of these big metal parts in the engine that, that, um, and, and it's, and it takes longer for it to drain back into the engine if it's a single weight oil than if it's multi-grade oil. Uh, because the single weight oil is a lot thicker at room temperature, so it doesn't flow back nearly as fast. Right. Um, yeah, I figured it had a lot to do with like outside air temperature. You know, I flew into Jackson, Mississippi, not Jackson, Tennessee, the other day, and they pointed my airplane to the north, and the airplane cooled, the engine cooled down really fast. And I noticed when I checked my oil sump, it was a lot lower than I would have expected it because I assumed that the oil just didn't yeah. come off the metal part. So just log the makeup oil you put in. And then use that number at at the next oil change to determine approximately what the average oil consumption was over that oil change interval period. The dipstick is, you know, is fine for getting sort of a general idea of how much oil is is in the sump. It's it's best to to take the reading after the engine's been sitting for a while, at least overnight, as a minimum. From from one and the do it consistently. Do it do it at the same time each time. So yeah. So the only problem with with checking your buildup, your added oil over a period of the thirty or forty or fifty hours, whatever you run, is if you have an eight quart sump and you consistently decide you're going to fill it to eight quarts, then especially in a Cirrus, if you're doing a long climb, the crankshaft gears down in that oil it creates a huge mist. In the engine, which is why people say, "Oh, well, I just dump out the top quart in that first hour of flying." Yeah, it's which during is, the climb. It's, yeah, it's when you're is, in a nose-up position, right? Which is largely true. So you need to establish, and this is why I, I like to do it like three days afterwards or whatever. You need to establish where your oil level kind of settles. So if you try to keep it at six, that's fine, or seven. But if you're keeping it at eight, you're going to have an artificially high oil consumption reading, if you will. 
So <laughs> yeah. it's more like an oil distribution than it's, <laughs> consumption. <laughs> well, it's kind of the same thing with the flight school. You know, if they were to add uh, a court every between each student, sure, obviously their average is going to be <laughs> super high. Yeah. So yeah, you have to you have to wait a few days to check it, and I just use that as my litmus test. But on a rare occasion, it's kind of weird. I would check my oil; it'd be down at at four quarts. Like what in the world? And so I would add two quarts into it, and then make my return trip home and check it the next day, and it'd be at eight. What? What in the world? So yeah, you have to you have to be careful how you track those. Another another interesting or important point of reference is knowing what the 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 minimum amount of oil that the engine actually needs to run properly and and uh, and on the the i o 550n that number is three and a half quarts so if yeah. there's three and a half <laughs> quarts in the engine um it will make oil pressure and and it will run okay now i'm not suggesting that you ever run it that low <laughs> But that's that's how low it can go before, and and we've actually, I've had the pleasure of of of, of looking at engine monitor data from a Cirrus that that actually ran the oil down below that number, and and it was very interesting to watch because you could you watch the oil pressure, and it would the, the oil pressure would started going down and then it started oscillating and you could just visualize that pump sucking foam instead of liquid. Foam. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But but it, that that happened at exactly three and a half quarts. When when the airplane got on the ground the next morning they drained the oil and there was exactly three and a half quarts in the engine, which is exactly where the type certificate data sheet says that the the that unusable oil level is. So you know as long as you have four and a half, five quarts in there, you're 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 fine. And so mo- most most people try to fill the sump to six and and let it get down to five and add a quart. But again, depending on when you measure it, it's best best to measure it before the first flight in the morning, not try to measure it after yeah. you come in from yeah. a flight. No, not after. You can't you can't even read the oil on the dipstick right after a flight. It's too clear, right? I can't see it. And it's all well, running. I can't it touch on the dipstick. The it's too is. hot. Yeah. My oil is nice and visible right after the first run. Really? Oh, is it is an hour <laughs> before you pull the cylinders? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, it's a little bit better after I did those yeah, two cylinders. I bet it's a lot better. Uh-huh. Now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's don't talk well, about my engine. <laughs> I don't I don't think you're overthinking it, Tate. I think it's important to know, you know, what your engine's doing with its oil, where it's going. That's that's good to know, but but just think about averages. But I mean, as Paul pointed out, uh, measuring oil consumption and figuring out when to add makeup oil are two totally different things. Right. Um, and, and the methodology for, for getting, uh, determining those two things are, are totally different. Okay, and so I should on. not run my engine to failure and then see how it no. goes. Probably no. not. <laughs> not. Don't, fly, don't, don't fly like I fly. Do something, do something <laughs> better than that. And good on you for uh, for going to twenty two hundred. I'm at about twenty three on mine, and you've got a lot of life left in that engine. 
Uh, well, I just did my oil change yesterday and sent all my borescope images to to Savvy. So I'll race you and see how fast uh, you can get to 2,500 and I can get to 2,500. I'll race you. Yeah, <laughs> keep watching the oil filter carefully because yep, if, if something, something comes apart in the bottom end, you want to know it right as soon as you can. I actually went to go cut my oil filter open yesterday and somebody had stole my uh, oil filter cutting tool. So I have no what? idea where on the airfield it is. Oh. <laughs> of all things to steal. This, yeah, you left. You probably you probably left your wallet right next to it, and they took the cutter instead of your <laughs> they wallet. Took the cutter. <laughs> the cutter's got more value than the wallet, <laughs> right? <laughs> cool. Well, excellent question, Tate. Yeah. Yeah. Thank y'all. Appreciate cool. the call. Okay, so we got a couple of letters about the AirCoop radio popping, actually, which I think is interesting. First from Clive in the UK, and I, I can you can tell he's in the UK because he's he corrected our grammar. So he says, <laughs> hi, just a thought of about the question above. The guy said the radio was okay up to 1200 RPM. He said there's no S in RPM. So up to 1200 RPM. I'm not so familiar with mags on a plane, though I've had mine apart. But what happens when a magneto condenser or capacitor fails? On an old car years ago, when a car had points, it would cause radio interference when it failed and, of course, increase sparking at the points. Just a thought. Well, he knows an awful lot about mags if he took one apart. Uh, there's there's a bunch of mechanics that have never taken a mag apart. Yeah. But yeah, the failure of a of a condenser, I guess they call them condensers in mags. That's an old, old, old term. Would generate uh, RFI and also would generate arcs across the contact points that would cause them to get pitted and nasty and have to be replaced eventually. So is the question about he has a popping sound in the headsets and he's trying to resolve it or he's just trying to imagine what might cause it? I well, I think he's lab. suggesting that that could have been a cause. But um, yeah. but I don't think the caller mentioned any problem with, okay. with his ignition system. Well, if you leave a spark plug cap loose, if it comes loose, mm. it, you'll get a popping sound. Is that working? It, it'll go with RPM. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's very distinguishable. It'll go with RPM, as in when you increase RPM, you'll hear it's right. like the the yeah. the bean the bean nut on the, the spark plug or whatever yeah. whatever you call it. I don't know if it's called a bean nut, yeah, cap nut on the yeah. spark plug. If it's if it's not connected uh, or mm -hmm. not connected well, you'll have a, the arcing will happen there, and you'll hear it in the headset every time. It's it's like you know, arcing is kind of like a, a lightning strike. It it emits pretty mm -hmm. much everything in in the frequency band. RF spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> RF spectrum, it gets it all. And it's so close that you're going to hear it in the headset. Hey, I have a question. What Whatever happened to the A-nut? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know well, what B-nut stands for, but I'm, I'm sure there's there's some, some guy's name that starts oh, with a B. Oh, that's a good question. We'll get more mail. More <laughs> mail. How about, was it Billy Beam? Billy Beam. <laughs> Somebody knows. Somebody knows the answer to that question. We're going to get another letter. Anybody <laughs> who knows where, where, where the term B-nut came from, please write in. <laughs> and RPMs doesn't have an S on the end. <laughs> That's right. So just don't forget that. Another idea about the AirCoop. He says, hey, Paul, Mike, and Colleen, I had an idea on the AirCoop radio noise issue a caller raised during your most recent show. Acknowledging that I don't know a ton about AirCoop. I wonder, AirCoop, not AirCoops. I wonder if it has a generator instead of an alternator. And perhaps an old vibratory voltage regulator. 
Years ago, I owned an Apache with dual generators. The generators in my airplane typically didn't generate enough voltage to support the electrical system until the engine got to about 1,000 or 1,100 RPMs. Yeah, yeah that's normal. Um, RPM, singular. RPMs. <laughs> RPM, yeah. <laughs> oh, is that an EN thing? Really <laughs> disconnected <laughs> from the electrical system until the RPM was up which was nerve-wracking, of course, knowing that I was discharging my battery during taxi. If his setup is similar, uh, it's an additional RPM-dependent device he could be experiencing in his airplane. Um, if the system in, his, in this vintage airplane is similar, I wonder if the regulator is to blame. Hmm. That's from Dan. I, I've never known a regulator to... Cause noise. Cause that yeah. kind of noise. Not a popping noise, for sure, because when those things are going, it's a buzz. Yeah, and it's they 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 vibrate at a pretty low frequency. Yeah, yeah, those are pretty awesome devices too. Delco Remy, as in Dayton Electronics Company. Right, you adjusted them the with the needle nose flyers. Yeah. You bent. That was in Dayton. We were in Dayton. That's what we were in Dayton, and I learned that's about right. that. Yeah, Delco Remy. Yep. Hmm. Our next question is from Rex, who's trying to avoid sludge, which sounds like the title of a really late night <laughs> horror movie. But so, <laughs> the sludge that ate Chicago or something. I'm sorry, Rex. I'm just I'm just in a mood today. I don't know what you what's certainly going are. On? <laughs> okay, I've got a new IO three sixty, and it's uh, only got a less than two hundred hours on it, and it's a and it's, I want to keep it. Nice yeah. and new and clean. And I've had good experience with synthetic oils in other places. Of course, air-cooled engines are different. Airplane engines are different. Then I heard the stories about sludge with full synthetics, and I'm using the shell semi-synthetic, and I'm wondering what you guys think about that. <laughs> oh, you asked the wrong crowd. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Why? Um, it's actually not as bad to use Aeroshell 15W50 in your... Lycoming as it would be, say, in, in Paul Cirrus. But if it were me, I, I would either run the engine on unleaded fuel if you have an option to do that, or I would use a different oil uh, that, that's all mineral oil, like, like, like the Philips multi-grade product or the single-weight aeroshells oils until such time as it's possible to run that. To airplane on unleaded fuel. The, the The problem is, and everybody I think knows about, or at least has heard about, the debacle that Mobile had with their Av One synthetic back when in the in the nineties when it when when they when it was removed from the market in a hail of class action lawsuits because it wrecked so many engines. Synthetic oil has a lot of advantages to it. But the huge disadvantage is the fact that it, it, it is not good at holding particulate matter in suspension, particularly lead-type particulate matter, lead, lead, lead salts and lead bromides and that sort of thing. And synthetic oil works great in auto engines because they've been running on leaded fuel forever. And it will work great in aircraft engines if, if, if anybody ever does come back to market with an all-synthetic once we've made the transition to unleaded fuel. But it, it, it just doesn't work very well with, with leaded fuels. 
the aeroshell is about a 50-50 mix between synthetic and uh, petroleum-based stocks. And so it, it, in round numbers, it, it, it basically has half the ability to absorb that stuff and keep it in suspension that, that a full mineral-based oil like, uh, like Phillips XC or aeroshell W100 would have. Whether the the aeroshell is adequate to hold that stuff in suspension and avoid sledge formation is is a function of several variables: how, how much blow by the engine has, and how often you change the oil. So, if for maximum protection against sledge formation, I would I would use a, a one of the oils that's made of all all dead dinosaurs. If you do use the Aeroshell 15W50, it would probably be a good idea to change it a little more often than every 50 hours because it does have a, a limited capacity to hold that stuff in suspension and not let it precipitate out of sludge. I, I understand. Um, the two things I have done to uh, mitigate the inability to hold the particle matter in suspension is one run, run Lena Peak runs a lot cleaner, and the other and with the gamma injectors. And the other that I do is any oil that I make up between my 30-hour interval is mineral oil. So as the oil gets dirtier, it has a better capacity. Oh, I see. That's interesting. So so you're 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 making it less semi-synthetic <laughs> as time goes but, on. That's a fascinating approach. Why wouldn't you just start with mineral oil? Well, because the synthetic oil is so much better of a lubricant. I mean, if you look at the engineering studies and look at, you know, how well the coefficient of friction under different temperatures and, and things, it's a far superior lubricant that does not solve the sludge or the solids not being held in suspension. It, it, well. it definitely has it, higher lubricity and, and greater film strength. The, the thing you have to understand is that our piston aircraft engines have incredibly modest lubrication needs compared to, air, to car engines because they turn so slowly that lubrication, if you know, there's like eight different things that we ask our engine oils to do. And lubrication is way down on the list. <laughs> the, 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 the biggest challenge for aircraft engine oil is the fact that our engines are absolutely filthy compared to automotive engines. And they're filthy because, first of all, they have huge displacement, so that there's that there's a lot more area for for stuff to blow by. Second of all, they have miserable temperature regulation because they're air cooled, so the the clearances are, are 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 not anywhere near as tight as they are. So, and and third, they're running on this horribly leaded fuel that we wish we could get rid of, but it's. <laughs> We may have talked so, about that today. Yeah, so yeah, twice. you know, the, so the biggest challenge for aircraft engine oil is is keeping the engine clean. Keep, keeping it lubricated is, is pretty far down the list. It, it also acts as a coolant because the the cylinder heads are air cooled, but like the piston isn't air cooled, and there's a lot of stuff in the engine that the only cooling it gets is is from well circulation. Um, it, it, we use it as hydraulic fluid to, to control prop pitch, to control turbocharger wastegates. So there's all sorts of things we ask the oil to do besides lubricate. But l lubrication is pretty far down on the list, really, because the engines have such modest lubrication needs. Their biggest challenge is that they're just horribly dirty. I understand. Okay. Appreciate the Thank call, you, Rex. Rex. That's very kind we'll of you. see ya.
Our next question is from Pete, who's hoping for some free flight time. Go ahead, Pete. Oh. I don't write these intros, by the way. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, Colleen, Paul, and Mike for taking my question. I purchased a 1971 Piper Arrow back in 2015, and one of the first things I did was I put an electronic engine monitor in it. Yes. I bought Excellent. a uh, JPI EDM 830 engine monitor. But mm-hmm. as you probably know, that's not a certificated instrument. I'm not sure if that's the right terminology to use, but that's I had good. to keep all my original engine instruments in the plane as well. Mm-hmm. So effectively, mm-hmm. I have two tachometers in the plane, two fuel flow meters, et cetera. I fly the plane about 150 hours or more per year. And I put, Excellent. according to the mechanical tech, I put about 1,200 hours on it since I bought it. The question I have, or the issue that I'm, I have a question about is that the JPI consistently shows the engine RPM to be about 50 to 100 RPM higher than what the factory <laughs> tack is reading. Of course uh, it does. Typical, totally expected, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, the, t- the, the tack is 50 some odd years old, so uh, I guess I should mm-hmm. cut it a break. But typically at 2400 RPM, the, the JPI is showing about 150 to 100 higher than what the mechanical tack is. I've never done anything to actually see which one is correct, but after API, I, I was kind of guessing <laughs> that. But um, after eight years of operation, there's a fairly large discrepancy between what the JPI says is my total tack time and what my OEMs shows. It's about up to almost about 200 hours now difference between the two. So according to the, the JPI, I've put about 1,400 hours on the plane since I bought it, not 12. Mm-hmm. Anytime I take the plane into the shop for work, my mechanic uh, uses the original mechanical tack to record the time in the logbooks. And when we do our oil changes, yeah. you know, we're, we're measuring 50 hours off in the mechanical tack. But my question is, you know, what's my responsibility for reporting the tack time, you know, such as making entries in the logbook? And then related to that, if I ever sell the airplane, you know, what, what time should I be telling this, the buyer that is on the engine? Okay, very two, interesting two, question. Two, two, basic rules, two basic rules to follow. <laughs> Electronic tacks are always more accurate than mechanical tacks. The second rule is when recording maintenance, always use whatever time runs the slowest. Slowest. <laughs> And I when charging for that. the airplane, use whichever one is the highest. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that's so the, the answer is that your mechanic is doing exactly the right thing yep. by, by, by logging stuff off of the old original tech. Now, of course, you could screw this whole thing up by by having that factory tech sent out and overhauled, and, and then yeah, it would read more that. accurately. <laughs> but you have no obligation to do that. But yeah. You, know, you can use the, whatever, whichever the, one you want. So use right. the one that's to your advantage as well. You can use say. your Apple Watch if you want to. It, yeah. It, 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 it. <laughs> you can record time with a watch. Absolutely. And so keep I, in mind. I, would, I, would, I would definitely use the, the original mechanical tech time as the thing you, you log in the line. But uh, besides, if you don't do that, then you're going to have like a big jump. A discrepancy. <laughs> the, yeah. 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 And, and then you'll have, have to explain, explain it that. and stuff. You know, as 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 Lucy used to say to Ricky, you got gonna have you a got lot of explaining, explaining to do. Explaining <laughs> to do. <laughs> I mean, you could check it with a handheld tech 
uh, real easily just to, to verify that it's the JPI is the more accurate, but we're pretty. But it has to be accurate. It yeah, it is because it's, Ele- electrons don't lie. Yeah, and and the JPI is counting revolutions. It's not measuring revolutions. And in the world of measuring things, anytime you can count something, it's going to be more accurate than measuring it. So that's from my land surveying days. Another thing, just to give you a little point of information, since you have an 830, the 830 is reading fuel flow. I know this is totally off topic. I'm sorry. Just throw this in there. You're measuring real fuel flow on the JPI, but your fuel flow, the analog fuel flow that's still in the airplane is a pressure gauge. So now you have a fuel pressure gauge. It's calibrated in gallons per hour, but it's actually a pressure gauge. So when you have an injector clog, you have really helpful information because the yeah if you have an injector clogged the fuel flow goes down but the pressure goes up goes up oh yeah. okay they've always been yeah, really close that. all the yep. other instruments that are duplicated by the the JPI seem to be pretty close except yep. for the common yep that's that's about normal because it's measuring in a modern way <laughs> yes <laughs> it's using a Hall effect sensor Paul. Yeah, if he has the on one the that's mag, on, the, on yeah. the Magneto, yeah. On the mag, yeah. Very yeah, much. and also yeah. we replaced uh, one of the mags with electronic mags, so I don't think that made any difference, but uh, yeah. No, because you keep nope. the Hall effect sensor on the original mag. On the tractor mag, yeah. Yep. So that means when you do a mag check, the, the, the RPM, no, it doesn't make yeah, it, it goes go to away. Zero. No, no, it does not with the Hall effect sensor. If you were on a P lead, oh. it would go to zero, but a yeah, Hall effect yeah, yeah, sensor yeah. is just measuring the... The rotating magnet assembly, which right. which it still keeps rotating even when you turn the mag yeah. off. Yeah, when I when I switch to test the my sim, which is a Surefly, my RPM reading goes to zero because I'm only tapping off RPM from the magneto. Yeah, so interesting. Kind of a related follow up question. Uh, you might know that the Arrow's got a an operating restriction which prohibits prolonged operation yeah. between twenty one hundred and twenty three fifty RPM vibrator. Yeah. Um, so you know, in cruise, I'm using the the JPI to set the RPM. So I set it at twenty four hundred, and then if I look down at the original tack, the, the original right needle is pointing right in the yeah. red zone there. Yeah. So again, <laughs> I've, I've always assumed that the JPI was accurate, but yeah. just mm-hmm. wanted to get your opinion if this was advisable or if I should really keep that needle out of the red zone. Here, here's a helpful hint. Go get yourself uh, some uh, a masking tape <laughs> and cover up all of the old original tack except, except for the hour meter hour readout. Meter reading. <laughs> But be sure and take that off if the FA wants to do a ramp check. <laughs> Always remove the masking tape before the FA <laughs> shows the up. <laughs> and the duct tape. And the duct tape. <laughs> and the electrical yeah. tape. <laughs> <laughs> no. Great. So bottom line, um, just use the information that's to your best advantage, um, the JPI when you need to be accurate, and the other tack when you need to you be slow. rack up maintenance time. You want to be <laughs> slow. And this is not cheating. This is legitimate. This is no. It's this fine. is how everybody does it. So playing the you know, system. You're, to you're your not advantage. lying to the buyer someday. The fact that you called in when you get ready to sell the airplane, you're going to tell the person you're selling it to, "Hey, this is what it's doing," because you won't be able to help it. That's just that's way, the way you're going to be. And it said, but legitimately, the tax is this. Mm-hmm. 
You're not the only one that has this issue. So a lot of people do this. And Yeah, I think in hindsight, I should have paid the extra money and just got the certificated instruments. But then I'd have 200 more hours on my engine. Right yeah. Now, so. yeah. <laughs> no, I, think, I think you're doing great. That's right. Yeah. No, you're doing fine. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Pete. Great question. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Appreciate the call, Pete. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode. Hopefully, we got a few frings right this time. Let us know and keep sending us those tricky questions. You can email us at podcasts at aopa.org. We'll see you. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.